Hello, my name is Nick Spasic, and you're listening to From and Inspired by, a podcast about soundtracks and the people who make them. On this episode, we speak with Doug Harrison and John Harrison about their band 29.9, the use of their music in the cult film Effects, and its recent resurrection via Writing Easy's Brown Acid compilation series. Okay, let's see a movie. Nobody is going to believe a spurt of blood. They'll believe anything we show them. She's pretty good with that razor, huh? You ought to put her in the movie. Well, I still don't know what to do when he comes in. No, no, you're fine. You're stoned. You're confused. Besides, everything's happening too fast for you to even be scared. It's trash. Killing somebody on, on, on film? It's sick. No, no, no. This isn't what I thought it was. people would pay to see something like that sure people pay to see anything the label writing easy records has made a name for themselves with a focus on heavy rock and roll while the labels released any number of modern acts including swedish rockers mono lord the real treat is their long-running series of brown acid compilations the label in conjunction with curator lance barisi of music shop permanent records compiles and releases some of the best undiscovered heavy rock from the 60s and 70s it's always a joy to read through the press releases for the upcoming iterations to see what nuggets the next installment will bring for the ninth trip writing easy did a really deep pull for the last track on the compilation per the press release this band came into our lives while watching the cult horror film Effects. The film is entertaining, to say the very least, but the star for us is a sh- very short clip of background music in a scene where one of the characters is looking through a stack of bondage Polaroids. As the photos are being flipped through, a boombox blasts a pentagram-esque hard rocker that caught our attention immediately. We tracked down the director of the film, John Harrison. Turns out the song in Effects was by a band John played in with his brother Doug and a couple of other guys in the late 60s. They called themselves 29.9, and they recorded Paradiddle Blues and a few other tracks, but never released any of them until now. We reached out to the folks at Writing Easy, and they put me in contact with Doug Harrison, who put me in contact with John Harrison, and so we did a conference call with the brothers and chatted about the history of 29.9, how the band came to be in effects, John's work as a composer for George Romero, and a lot more. Stick around after the interview to hear an unreleased cut from 29.9, unavailable anywhere else. I'm speaking with Doug Harrison and John Harrison, um, who were members of the band 29.9, whose uh, music was um, lost to time. Um, 
and will be getting released on Halloween uh, in the latest installment of Easy of Writing Easy Records um, Brown Acid series. Um, thank you both for taking time to speak with me. Doug, uh, what was your guys' musical upbringing? Whatever I say, John's going to have to chime in because he was part of it every step of the way. All right. I mean, every step of the way, except for occasional uh, intermittent lapses on his part. <laughs> but uh, um, basically, uh, I was just a kid uh, in a marching band when I was around 13 years old. Okay. And um, uh, a suburban kid. I loved music. I loved everything I heard on the radio that caught my ear. Uh, naturally, uh, I tried to imitate just about anything that, that uh, struck my fancy. And at that time, my brother, uh, back in those days, in the early 60s, was the uh, folk music phase of America. <laughs> Nick, I don't even know that you're old enough to remember that. I, I, but, I, uh, not old enough to remember it, but yeah, I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, we quickly and, graduated out of that. <laughs> <laughs> but John um, was the one that was actually making uh, uh, productive use of uh, of that because um, he and two other uh, friends of his from school were involved in like folk trios and folk quart- quartets and things like that. Well, as time went on and um, that kind of phased out, I always stayed with close with my brother and his friends whom I met through music, okay? So, and I was always, for some reason, I always hung out with a little older guys, like two, three, four years older than me. And so, like I said, um, out of the marching band, my brother got into a gig very early in the game that required uh, a drummer. So I think I was 14 at the time. And uh, uh, so we took a chance. Uh, I had a little set of drums, and uh, we did it. And it was a, uh, a, a theater piece, and... Uh, um, that was my first drum solo. It was a copy <laughs> of, uh, of, uh, Wipeout by the Ventures. <laughs> and back in those days, um, my brother would come off the stage and join the band. So that's the first time the four of us were really together. So, um, John, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, uh, yeah, we, we put the band together because we wanted to, uh, you know, everything was kind of turning rock and roll, and and uh, we had all we'd grown up with that stuff. And I was uh, in a church choir, and, and you know, whenever we finished rehearsals, we would go out and we'd sing a cappella doo-wop. And and uh, so, like my brother said, it was that was just the kind of stuff we grew up with. And so, when we could uh, put an electric band together, we did. We were called the Hustlers, and um, we just played. Uh, you know, all the high school dances and, and parties and anything, wherever we could get a gig. And, uh, you can get a feel for this. All through high um, actually, it was, it was actually in the era of Animal House. Okay. okay. That's where we kind of like got our upbringing in those kinds of gigs. Okay. And we were, I'm not saying we're anywhere like Otis Day. Okay. <laughs> Nobody was that good. But uh, that's about the period where I would, wouldn't you, John? That's the type of period we yeah. started doing clubs. Doing clubs. Yeah, we started doing clubs and 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 parties and stuff like that. And then uh, we, <clears throat> you know, we had all the bands that we idolized and went around to see. A lot of it was rhythm and blues. James Brown, Otis mm-hmm. Redding, 
the Wicked Picket, you know, that was that was our stuff, and that was mm-hmm. the stuff that we loved. The Beatles, of course, and the Stones, and you know all the stuff that the kids wanted to hear. But uh, but that was our and stuff, the Beatles, and then that kind of morphed into blues. When the Beatles and Stones and other British groups hit, of course, now we love the, the good ones, okay, the good bands, of course. But we never lost track, uh, and a lot of people never lost track of the the R and B that was going on right before they hit, like Stax Volt, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. John Atlantic Records. Um, yeah, absolutely. So it kind of Nick, it kind of merged. It was like a really, it was really um, an advantageous time for music because, in my opinion, okay, and every time I, I'm telling you here is on my humble opinion. When the Beatles hit, it was like instantly guys our age, okay, which was I think 60, I'd say 14, 15, 16, 70. They re- we recognized it. They were listening over in Britain to the same stuff we were over here, and this is this has been um, attested to, you know. Uh, by everybody, but we didn't know that until, like, really, the Beatles and the Stones hit, and and we knew they were listening. You know, it was coming back. It was like an echo effect. All right, it kind of legitimized everything we were doing with our own style, and it was a lot of fun. And it was just a lot of fun. And so that that's about what John sixty four, sixty three, sixty four. Yeah, sixty four, sixty three, five, and then and then uh, and then when we graduated high school and went off to college, we kept the band together in various incarnations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, kept going and, uh, we kind of, we ended up in Boston and, uh, that's when 29 kind of emerged. Yeah. These, these band, we all kept together, but these, they weren't necessarily under any particular name. You know, we would, <laughs> so, you know, you got to realize back then it was very easy. Well, I don't know, very, it was a lot easier to transfer from college to college. Okay. If you were serious about getting your degree, if you came out say, your freshman year with a halfway decent degree, you could transfer, okay, mm-hmm. without a lot of money, okay? I'm not, it, it still was expensive, but there were not a lot of add-ons. Not like today. To it. Right, it was definitely not. So we kind of followed each other around, okay? Um, uh, my brother uh, started out at Lehigh. Jim McMillan, a very important member of the band, a great lead guitar player, started out at Franklin Marshall. Stan Hahn, a wonderful guitar and bass player, went to John Hopkins. Uh, my first uh, venture was um, Long Island University. And then um, those three um, just kept pushing the thing, uh, kidnapped me, and took me up to Boston, right, where my brother was going to Emerson College at the time. Right. Hey, Doug, let me interrupt for just a second. Um, get a little closer to your house, because you're getting too far away from your base. Your base unit and your your phone is starting to break up. So just Can get you hear closer me now? to the house. Yes, trying to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just stay uh, a little closer to the house because then you're, you'll be closer to the base unit. Nick can edit okay? all this shit out. Yeah. Is this okay so far? Sounds great. Yeah. Oh, okay. Go ahead. So you so, you you get up to Emerson and you you've you've joined up with your your brother and and, and the others and that's right. So. Like at what point do you all decide like we should record some of these songs we're re- we're we're making at at that point at that point in Boston, and you know well, the tell only them drag... we all live together in a house. Tell them, well, tell, tell them about Dunedin Road. Well, you tell because <laughs> I didn't go there. I mean, I, I you dragged me up there. You were like the uh, you guys were the pioneers up there. So you you can you can tell them about that. I'll fill in. You know? but, uh, well, I I went up there. I moved up to Boston, and then. um 
everybody said, well, we're coming up too. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I rented a house and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it wasn't quite big pink. It was like, <laughs> like crummy green. Um, plum. Yeah, exactly. And so we, uh, we set up in the basement and, uh, uh, so that, uh, we could record. Now, I wasn't, at that time, I was going to, to drama school and I wasn't a full member of the band at that point. It was a trio. Well, let me kind of explain on. from that. Yeah. 29-9 yeah. was always going to be myself, Jim McMillan, lead and or bass guitar, Stan, Han- Stan Hahn, lead and or bass guitar, and John Harrison, bass guitar and vocals. John was wrapped up in his dramatics and would occasionally bless us with his, you know, uh, entrance in horrible vocal. <laughs> <laughs> and so 29.9 was basically Nick uh, made up of three guys plus one, okay, at his convenience. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when it started. That's when it's. So we had this basement and, um, in the house where we all lived with uh, various animals and girlfriends and whatever. And the, uh, we had a really good friend, lifelong friend of all of ours, named John Sutton, who had some recording equipment. And uh, John wanted to be in the production side of the music business, and so he would come over with his recording equipment and set up some mics in the basement and record us down there. And we, you know, we put soundproofing up, which was essentially um, fiberglass, fiberglass uh, <laughs> lining, which we put up wrong. We put it up with the wrong side out, but it worked. We, yeah, it worked. We put it on inside out. <laughs> so uh, we tapped that up against the wall, and then uh, and that was that was basically our recording studio. So what you hear in Paradiddle Blues and whatever other songs from Twenty Nine Nine, it's just like what was it, Doug? Like one or two mics in the middle of the room, basically, right? Yeah. Electric electric voice microphones in a basement. Okay, maybe uh, uh, one on each amp. One on uh, one yeah. to be shared by vocals and uh, a couple on drums. That's all. So where did those recordings end up going? <laughs> John, you want to take into that? another basement? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What did we do with it, Doug? We never really. Well, well they were kind of audition tapes for twenty nine nine, right? Yeah, and they really didn't get far because um, you have to actually have somebody to um, shop them around. We didn't have anybody like that. It was in the process of dreaming, well, someday we'll have somebody to shop them around. But we just kept going, you know. So we never really had a manager or anything like that to approach anybody, wouldn't you say, John? No, I mean, it was uh, it was really just a garage band and, and uh, working out tunes. Um, we had a couple three of Three of you, mostly. Yeah, and then uh, those tapes just ended up in a, uh, you yeah. know, I've, I've been carrying them around for 40 years. <laughs> Like how long did the did the band uh, end up lasting? I know John, you would end up going on the road with Roy Buchanan in the mid seventies. Well, that's when you would have. Well, there to was stay. A, there was a period of time, but between then, when when we all left Boston, we moved. Uh, you know, within a little bit of short time, we moved down to uh, Central Pennsylvania to uh, State College. Uh, State College, Pennsylvania, and. John Sutton had moved there to finish up going to college, and he wanted to set up a recording studio there. So we all yeah. moved down there and camped out there to 
put a different incarnation of the band together, and that band was called Homebrew. Mm. And, uh, and that was that was that was a more serious attempt that we thought we had actually had a shot. Right, but and uh, so we did ahead. the bar circuit. We did the we did the club circuit all over Pennsylvania and and around State College, and then went into this recording studio, which we made out at the farm that John was living in. John Sutton was living in, and we uh, we set up a recording studio there, and then we started writing a lot of original stuff and recording it, and uh, so that became the next incarnation of the band. But it was always the same guys, except for Stanley. Stanley stayed up in New England and formed a different band of his own, we all stayed in touch, and we'd, we'd see each other. But uh, Jim and Doug and I, and uh, another guy we picked up in State College, Chuck Rothell, we formed a new band called Homebrew and, and started doing more original stuff. And, and that Stan, band, unfortunately, you know, yeah. Stan, unfortunately, yeah, and that killed in an automobile accident. And so, unfortunately, we wouldn't have him again. Right. So uh, that... that uh, and then that that band was what? Together we were together about two, three years, three years, yeah. four years, something yeah. like that, Doug. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then let me—I'll try to. Nick's probably going to want to know this. Why then didn't we continue? And the answer to that is, it's not my brother's fault. When we were really kind of directional, directionless at the time, an opportunity for John came up with Roy Buchanan, and there was just no way the three of us, or the two of us anyway could say, hey, man, you can't go, all right? And to be honest with you, uh, I'm glad he went. <laughs> and so wouldn't you say, John, that was the year that happened. That was the year you, you went with Roy. Yeah, that was about that, right about that time. You and Jim took a, took a sojourn out there to California for a year and yeah. uh, were working out there for a year with various bands. Um, and I went off with Roy, and um, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the genesis of the whole thing. What made you pull those tapes out to use them like years later in like that one scene in effects? Okay. Well, I'll I'll tell you the story about how that came to be, but then Doug should tell you how we how Lance tracked us down. Um, Will you go ahead? When I went back, when I went back to Pittsburgh, um, and uh, I got this opportunity with Roy, I had. Uh, two really good friends on the drama side who wanted to put a film production company together and the way Roy toured we would go we never went out on well we did a few long extended tours but we usually just played a lot um, but then I had a lot of time off in between it was kind of like James Brown's band I'd get a call John you gotta be in New York at such and such a time okay I'd be there I'd go play and then I'd go home um, and um it was when we went over to Japan or we went, you know, to Europe or to around to the West Coast that we'd go out for a long period of time. Otherwise, it was just a lot of gigs. So I had time to put this other company together yeah, with not, my friend. Let's not skip over the fact that you are also finishing up your master's degree at Carnegie Mellon, <laughs> and were involved in the theater arts end. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I get bored easily, so <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> tried to keep myself right. Busy. Right. But, so that so anyway, we put this film production company together around that time, and we thought, you know, we met uh, uh, what turned out to be one of my dear friends and mentors, George Romero, and he had made a film called Night of the Living Dead, and was also continuing to make films in Pittsburgh. And we thought, well, man, if he can do it, we can do it. So we we went around and begged and borrowed a bunch of money from friends and made a little movie called Effects. 
And because we had no money, obviously we couldn't hire anybody to do a score. I played some piano. I made, I, I did some music and Doug played on it and other people that we knew played on it just so we could have some music for the movie. But we needed, we needed music, you know, on the radio or on the record players or anything in the background. And so, uh, my friend who was the director of that movie, Dusty Nelson, knew he'd been with us all along and he knew 29.9 and he said, man, in this scene, one of those songs that you guys used to do would be perfect. So I pulled the tape out, and we played it, and uh, we put it on the radio uh, in the background of the scene. And so that's how it ended up in the movie. And then years later, my brother gets a call, and then the rest is history. <laughs> I get a call from Dusty, who we knew all our lives, uh, grew up with, Nick. And he was very involved in the film camera and editing and stuff like that. I get a call from him out of clear blue. Lance had contacted him because... From Permanent Records? Is that it, Doug? Yeah, Permanent Records what, in L.A. Yeah. Nick, I may not have this exactly right, but uh, one of Dusty's old friends from Pittsburgh, uh, Barney somebody, John? McKenna. Okay. Barney McKenna. McKenna. Who yeah. was in the movie. He was in the movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Has a daughter or a niece or something that was going out either with Lance or one of Lance's friends. And they played, I don't know what, for some reason... They threw this video of effects uh, on tape player, I guess. Or the, the that was the name of the movie, Effects. Yes. Yeah. And I guess it was Lance heard this in the background, and I call him Crazy Lance because <laughs> I'm starting to love the guy. His, he's so zealous and enthusiastic about everything. Okay. He he liked this. <laughs> God For some that. unknown reason. <laughs> I mean, who sits around and says, hey, i got to hear that music, whatever's playing, on the radio in a movie. Not not the movie music itself. <laughs> the radio. And so Dusty calls me, and, and I get back to Lance, and that's how that all started, Nick, and then I guess... You and Lance took it from there. What, what I what I find so amazing about this is that like the film itself was sort of lost and didn't get a really good release until like uh, when it was put out on DVD in two thousand five. Well, John can tell you right. everything about. And then it just got like the Blu-ray release a, a couple years ago, and then like those releases led to like this unre other unreleased stuff getting to come out in an official fashion. And I think I, I just, I love the way that that kind of all like dovetails together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Doug and I sit around and we, you know, this is all stuff that we did. I mean, effects was done in 1977. Uh, <laughs> Pair little blues was recorded in 1970. So, I mean, we're talking stuff that was like lost to time for 30 years. And now all of a sudden, it's out again, so it's, it's yeah, pretty and then here's Lance saying, hey, i got to find it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and John and I are going, uh, okay, but, you know, why? <laughs> and so that's when, we, that's when we started opening the vault, Nick, and all this stuff comes out. And we have to chuckle while we're listening and trying to imagine in our heads Barney McKenna and his niece or, and Lance watching this somewhere in L.A. <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know. You know, and Lance, what, what Lance is trying to do with permanent records is really cool because yeah, he's going, about, he, going around and finding all these old bands and this, uh, 
lost material and putting it out again on vinyl, no less, mm -hmm. not CD, but on vinyl, um, is uh, is really fantastic. So, you know, I took the old tapes, and I'm, I'm really glad I did because uh, they're starting to fall apart now. And so, I took them out to some guys I know in LA who digitized this material and fixed them up a little bit and sent them to Lance. So he's responsible for saving this material. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. So another in, feather in Lance's cap. Do the two of you still like do music together as you know, just something fun? I'd love to, but been able to. Well, Doug's down right. in Pittsburgh, and I'm up here in Boston area, so it's uh, kind of hard to play. But John, I has still all play. His, yeah, John has. I all still his. have all my gear. Yeah, if I go up there, I can pound on some pots and pans. <laughs> so, I mean, Doug's helped me out. Like, you know, I did some when I left the bands and wasn't really performing anymore. I, I kind of had a short-lived career composing music for for Romero, Romero's films, and I'd haul Doug down to my you know, sort of makeshift studio, and I I had either a drum machine or some things to pound on, and I'd say, listen, man, I need some rhythm on this. I'm going, you know, give me some ideas here. And he would, uh, you know, he would come up with this incredible stuff, and then I would incorporate it into the score. Well, you know, so, John, for your um, screen, um, score right, right, you're too humble, because when you did have get involved in doing that. I mean, you came out with some really nice stuff. All the stuff you did on Creepshow, what, what was the other yeah. thing, the other stuff, Creepshow, One the Day, the the Day of the Dead and Tales from the Dark Side. And yeah. That's all. So I got, my, I got my chops yeah. doing that. So, John, like, I mean, I, I, I know what you do, and I know that you've got stuff in the Creepshow series that is getting ready to come out. Doug, what is, what is your line of work? Well, I'm just recently retired. I'll be 70 in November. And uh, I worked for a, an energy company for 20 years before that, and another energy company another 30 years before that. So I've been working pretty much since I was uh, 21 years old. And I just recently retired. I'm loving it. And uh, I have a little problem with my back. But uh, if I could manage it, I would. Uh, if I had an opportunity, I would play again. I definitely would. Uh, my kids, uh, both of them play drums. Uh, but, of course, they don't do it professionally. They, they're, they're on to being, like, real fixer. <laughs> on to more serious thing, but um, I would do it in retirement now, just, just because I love it, and I would love to do the stuff we grew up on. Okay, stuff that that I believe musicians, really, even with all the the great rap and everything out there now today, and whatever they call it, I, I still believe all those musicians really loved the basics that came out of your Stax Volt, your R and B bands like the Barkays, the Marquees. Singing by the, the Muscle Shoals guys. Oh, the Muscle Shoals guys, and of course James Brown. Okay, for uh, funk, uh, he changed everything really uh, in the funk world. Everybody would acknowledge this. Okay, so, I'm so yeah. excited that this music finally gets to come out and gets like an official release this Halloween. How 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 are you going to? Are are you going to like when you get your copies of the record, like put it on and play it loud? Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna turn it up to eleven. Yeah, eleven. Uh, I still have a turntable. I don't think my brother does. I'm gonna get one though, just because of this. <laughs> now we're gonna we'll be together because I'm gonna I'll be down I'm going down to Pittsburgh around that time. So hopefully we'll have our copies, and I'm sure that there will be some long nights that our wives will probably abandon us, and we'll be there and. Uh, 
turning it up to 11, like I say. Thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to talk to me. This has been like a real joy. I hope so. I hope we didn't bore you with No, this has been so much fun. (laughs) I hope you like the the tune. I hope you like the song. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Thanks, man. to Doug Harrison and John Harrison for talking with me and for sharing that song you just heard, which is 29.9's heretofore unreleased cover of Jimi Hendrix's You Got Me Floatin'. 
Brown Acid, the ninth trip, is out on Halloween from Writing Easy Records, and you can find it at either permanentrecordsla.com or Writing Easy's Bandcamp. Follow Writing Easy on Twitter and Instagram at Easy Writer Record, or on Facebook at Writing Easy Records. Thanks is also due to Joseph Ziemba of the American Genre Film Archive for sharing a screener of effects when our copy at the house went missing. Being able to rewatch the movie before sitting down to talk with Doug and John was invaluable. Go buy effects at AmericanGenreFilm.com or follow them on Twitter at Film Archive. You can find links to purchase all of the music you heard on the show in the show notes for this episode, which are at FromAnInspiredBy.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at FromInspiredPod. You can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher as well. Please hit up the website and click on the Give Us Money button to help pay for web hosting and long-distance fees, and remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We'll be back in two weeks talking about the new soundtracks for Lawrence Art Store and Gallery Wonderfair with Paul DeGeorge and Jade Rose. Until then... Thanks for listening.